Hi, welcome to New Hope Community Church Online. The sermon you are about to hear was originally given by Pastor Chuck Wilson. New Hope Community Church, to know, to live, and to share Jesus Christ. The title for today is Successful Failure. Successful Failure, 1 Kings 22. 1 Kings 22. Now, I've been watching the baseball playoffs, and I love this time of year, especially if my team is still in it. I love it even more. But we all, any baseball fan just loves this time of year, right? It's just awesome. But something I don't love is something that I'm seeing over and over in the playoffs from all the different teams, and that is this. A guy leads off the inning with a double, and three batters later, he's still standing on second. Still standing on second. Why? Because the next three guys swing for the fences. They swing for the fences and they come up empty. It's called the lost art of bunting. The lost art of bunting. In the old days, not that long ago, when I remember, uh, you know, somebody's on second base and there's no outs. He's going to be on third, no doubt about it, before the inning ends. And very likely they're going to bunt him over and then bring him in because somebody just has to hit a fly ball or even a, a ground ball is going to score that guy. But, but it's crazy they don't do that. Why don't players bunt anymore? Because they all want to hit a home run, right? Be the hero. But bunting is the key to winning a close game. Right, coach? The key to winning the close game. But players don't want to sacrifice bunt. They don't want to sacrifice themselves. Even if it's for the good of the team. Many times in sports, it's necessary for a player to to sacrifice himself or herself for the good of the team. Many, many times. I remember uh, when Nate was a senior. He was wrestling as a senior. And that senior year, they finally had a chance to upset the, 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 the championship team that had won many, many years ago. Remember, Joe, all the, the Lower Moreland winning every year? We finally had a chance to upset them that year. And so the, um, but it was going to be very close. And the coach had it all mapped out. Super coach, coach or super coach had it all mapped out. He knew exactly what everybody had to do. He knew who was probably going to win, who was going to probably lose. He had it all mapped out. But the one key match was at 145, I think it was called, the, the match. And, and that, that, that other team had this monster. He, he really wasn't that great, except he would lose 30 pounds illegally. You're not supposed to do that, right? But he'd lose 30 pounds. Everybody knew him for a lot, lot heavier before. He's like 175, 180. But he'd come in and wrestle. And as was, he's this huge guy wrestling, whoever was wrestling that weight. And the coach, that was the one tricky spot because he could lose that match. Knew he was going to lose it, but he couldn't get pinned. He said, if whoever I put in 145 can't get pinned. If they get pinned, we lose. If they don't, we win. He had it all mapped out. And it was halfway through the match, but the coach knew halfway through the match. He knew I, he knew he was going to know what was going to happen halfway through the match, uh, halfway through the, the, the competition. He, he, he knew he was going to win based on if somebody got pinned. So he decides to put Nate in that spot. And Nate didn't die at a pound. He's like, I'm not giving up any weight. You know, I'm getting ready for baseball. I'm not giving up my muscle and weight. You know, so he goes, he's, he really weighed 145. And, and so... He could have said, I want to wrestle up. I could want to wrestle down because he, he could probably beat some of these other guys. And But he goes, no, I'll do it. And the coach decided to put him in because he knew he would fight. 
And he puts him in there, and this guy, I remember he tried everything. He was a monster. He was 40 pounds heavier, really. He was a monster. Tried everything. He tried to slam him. He tried to bend his arm way back. I'm like, oh, no, there goes this pitching arm. You know, bending there way, way back. Everything, you know, anything he get away with, whatever the official let him do. He tries smashing his face, smashing his face down the mat. He tried everything. No big deal to Nate. He's got three older brothers. What's the big deal? You know, he, that's nothing. His older sister was tougher than this guy, right? So... And this guy wins. And when he wins, he didn't pin him. He could not pin him. The match was over. The guy was so mad. Nate was excited. He just got pinned. And he was excited. The guy who won was frustrated because he knew what happened. And not most people were clueless, most of the fans. But the coach was thrilled because he knew the match was over. He won it. What is true in sports is often true in life, especially with this. God's word teaches us that he often, God often calls us to fail in the world's eyes in order to succeed in his eyes. He calls us to do that. And we'll see that it's exactly what Elijah did. He was a successful failure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the worship. We thank you for bringing us all here. We thank you for helping us by your mercy and grace make it through many trials and struggles. Lord, we just pray that now your Holy Spirit would speak through your word as we read your word. It would speak through your word and touch our hearts and move us forward in our faith. Even some that have never put their faith in you for salvation, today would be that day. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start off with reviewing First Kings. Last time we did First Kings 21, 17 to 24, where we see something happen. I'm going to read it to you. First Kings 21, starting with verse 17. And this is Elijah being called to fail. Here, it's at verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to mate Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, So you found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make you like the house, your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like Basha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. Elijah was called, called to preach a very difficult sermon here. He was really called to fail. By this sermon here that he gave to Ahab by God's command, he was a successful failure. What did Elijah want? We've been studying this. What did Elijah want? He wanted Israel to return to the Lord. 
He wanted them to return to the one true God, Jehovah God. That's his only name, Jehovah. And But God uses him instead to prophesy judgment. He hoped for a national revival, and instead he got a remnant revival. He wanted a big church, he got a little church. He wanted a national revival, he got a remnant revival. And he not only got a, a, a remnant revival, he got a national disaster. While he was, wait till we see what happens to Israel. While he, he, he gets this national disaster, while he is hunted and hated like an animal. And everything Elijah says here, everything that he said would happen, did happen. And it was all bad. And it made him very sad. Well, maybe not the whole Jezebel thing. He probably did get too upset about it. But anyway, we won't go there. King Ahab appeared to repent. Wait till we, we're going to look at that in just a minute. Remember we talked about last time too. He, he, he appeared to repent. And Elijah dared to hope. But nope. Nope. But even though the revival fizzled, even though it failed, Elijah was still successful because he was faithful to God's call. Even though it didn't go the way he hoped and preached for, he was, he was faithful to God's call, which made him successful. Elijah was, was a success because he was faithful to God. And everything he said would happen, happened exactly the way he said it would. Ahab. Ahab appeared to repent. Remember we looked at that last time? Let's look at uh, 21, 27 to 29. It appeared that he repented. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. He appeared to repent. Exciting, right? Wouldn't you be excited? You preach a sermon, someone repents like that? I would be. But it wasn't real. It wasn't real. Uh, it's what Jeremiah called in Jeremiah 3, verse 10. In Jeremiah 3, verse 10, it's what Jeremiah called a... I'm going to read it to you. Uh, Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense. Pretense, declares the Lord. It was a pretend revival that they had. And that's what Ahab has. He has a pretend revival. Have you ever seen a pretend revival? 9-11 was a, pre was a pretend revival. Remember after 9-11, the churches were packed. Everybody went to church. They did studies on this. Everybody went to church. Everybody's praying. It was a big deal. Everybody's turning back to God. It lasted three months. Three months. And everybody went back to normal. Even worse than... Uh, well, no, we still sing, oh, God bless America, right? We still sing that in the baseball games. But there's been no repentance. We've gone further and further away from God. Further away. There, you see this in war many times. It's called a foxhole... Conversion, right? Make all these promises. God, the bombs are coming. And God, I'll serve you. I'll follow you. I'll give my life to you, Jesus. And then the war ends and they're gone. 
Or prison revivals. You see a lot of people in prison. If you've ever done prison ministries, you know what I'm talking about. People will write, you know, these passion conversions and say all the things they're going to do. As soon as they get out of prison, boom, not all of them, but, but way too many. Way too many. It even happens when people say they put their faith in Jesus Christ and give their life to Christ. You st- even see it then that someone says, yeah, I, I, I ask God to forgive my sin. I believe Jesus died for my sin on that cross. I, give, I put my faith in him. I give my life to him. They make that decision and a short time later, they're gone. That's what Jesus talked about in, Matt, in Mark, 4, 4, Mark 4, verse 13, when he says... Then Jesus said to them, I'm talking about the, four, the parable of the sower. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others like seeds sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. Sounds good to me, right? Ooh. But... Since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others sown, still other seeds sown among thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what is sown. Even conversions, we don't know if they're real. 25% success rate of those who claim they love God's word and claim they're going to follow Jesus, right? Follow through. Ahab had a pretend revival. He didn't change. How do we know he didn't really change? He didn't give the vineyard back. He murders Naboth, murders the son, takes the vineyard. There's no record in the word of God that he ever gave the vineyard back. There's no record that he ever really repented. In fact, in the very next chapter, we see how bad it got with with Ahab. In chapter 22, uh, another prophet is sent to confront Ahab over something he's doing wrong. And listen to what he says. The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat. There is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. He hates the prophet of God who's preaching the word of God. That's not a good sign. Not a good sign. He's ignoring God's, he hates God's word and the man of God and he ignores God's warning. God was warning him not to go to battle here. He was warning him not to do something and he didn't listen. And the end result, and also still in chapter 22, verse 29, let me pick it up with verse 29, where it says, So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went to battle. Why was Jehoshaphat even with this guy? A, because Jehoshaphat was jumping Jehoshaphat. Remember we heard the sermon? Uh, he was uh, actually a, a decent guy, but he, he shouldn't even been here. And why would he listen to him? Yeah, you go get shot. I'm going to go hide, right? Not too bright, that Jehoshaphat. But anyway, verse 34. But someone drew his bow at random. You cannot hide from God's judgment. 
Somebody drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. The king told his chariot driver, wheel around and get me out of the fighting. I've been wounded. Verse 37, so the king died and was brought to Samaria and they buried him there. They washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria where the prostitutes bathed and the dogs licked up his blood as the word of the Lord had declared. Let's move on to Jezebel. 2 Kings 9, verse 30. Jezebel, verse 30. 9 verse 30, then Jehu went to Jezreel. When Jezebel heard about it, she painted her eyes, arranged her hair, and looked out of the window. This is not a nice lady. As Jehu entered the gate, she asked, have you come in peace, Zimri, you murderer of your master? He looked up at the window and called out, who is on my side, who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him, throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot. Jehu went in and ate and drank. Take care of that cursed woman, he said, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. But when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull, her feet, and her hands. They went back and told Jehu and said, This is the word of the Lord that he spoke through his servant Elijah. The Tishbite. On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's body will be like refuse on the ground and the plot at Jezreel so that no one will be able to say, this is Jezebel. Now, I know I'm not supposed to enjoy this, but it's hard not to, isn't it? She was so wicked and killed so many of God's servants. It's like in Disney, and the evil witch finally gets it. You can't help it. You cheer, right? You know, I, I, I know. I'm, I'm past it. I'm a Christian again. Okay, here we go. Ahab's sons and family. 2 Kings 10, 17. When Jehu came to Samaria, he killed all who were left there of Ahab's family. He destroyed them according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. Elijah's long gone. He's long gone. He's already been up in the chair. We're going to see that soon. But everything he said has happened. And finally, ultimately, Israel has judged just like Elijah said Israel would be judged. 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17, verse 5, we'll pick it up with. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. Verse 7, all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God. Verse 12, they worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants and the prophets. But they would not listen. 
and were stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and covenants he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do, and they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. Verse 17, they sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. The last straw. God's last straw for Israel. They sacrificed their sons and daughters, their babies. Their newborn babies were being sacrificed to Moloch. The last straw. Take warning, USA. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Verse 20, Therefore the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of the plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. Elijah, who wanted revival, who wanted to save Israel from destruction, who wanted a successful ministry, was called to fail. He was called to fail, but he was a successful failure. He preached God's word faithfully. He preached God's word faithfully, even though Israel rejected God's word. And the majority of the Israelites hated him. How many, how many liked him? 7,000. Out of all the millions, 7,000 did not bow the knee to Baal. 7,000 were okay with this guy, supported him, but the rest hated him for it. Hated him. We are seeing the same thing today in the USA today. Here's an article I just was reading about. It says, unruly pro-abortion mob rages for imagined right to kill babies at George Washington University. Now listen to this. This just happened. This was written by a a Catholic ministry that that, uh, does this kind of ministry, tries to save babies, tries to influence women not to have abortions. It's a tremendous ministry. It says, on left-wing college campuses, this is an article written by one of the people, where on left-wing college campuses where procured abortion is considered more than a right, it has been elevated and granted the status of a secular virtue, this dark pro-abortion reality hit the TFP student action volunteers in the face like a brick when they visited George Washington University in Washington, D.C. on September 30th. I'm in favor of slaughtering a thousand babies if that's what helps already born babies have a better life, said a female student coldly without showing any remorse. What unfolded that day was eye-opening. Fifteen TFP volunteers, it's a Catholic organization, after reciting a short prayer, they fanned out on the sidewalks and got to work for moral values. Here, take a flyer. Ten reasons to protect the unborn, offered one politely. Yet their courteous tone was apparent and appreciated by many students. Oh, thank you, one said. I'm a Catholic too, one of the students said. They got several responses like that. But word got out quickly that they were on campus Through the social media, they sounded the alarm and they organized a counter-protest. Soon protesters started gathering. They set up a a large electric speaker that blasted vulgar music 
holding abortion signs, pro-abortion signs, dozens of students danced in chaotic disorder to pulsating beats that emphasized, emphasized the F word. Very few cared about having a civil discussion. My body, my choice, yelled one student. It's a sin to tell people what to do with their body. It's a sin to tell women what to do with their body. A male student screamed, I eat baby lungs for breakfast. Hell Satan blurted another one. The mob of about 100 students then attempted to surround the 15 volunteers. Uh, they started spitting on them. They started throwing soda. They started hitting them and kicking them. They started physically assaulting them. While these were happening, the campus police officers stood observing at a distance. But they refused to take any measures. When their help was requested, they replied, we've already called the city police. They'll be arriving shortly. Finally, police officers create, arrived, created a buffer zone with their bodies between the mob and the volunteers, but the mob showed no respect for the police officers nor obeyed their orders. Shocking. Later in the day, George, GW Voices for Choices issued a statement claiming that the TFP's peaceful action constituted a dangerous discourse and expressed outrage against the police department for not expelling these volunteers. White supremacy underpins anti-abortion beliefs, and it is both insulting and dangerous that GWPD is protecting those beliefs, while not keeping students of all races, religions, sexualities, and creeds, and students who have had abortions safe. The queer radicals also jumped on the bandwagon, and they published this. The, and I'm not picking on any race or anything. I'm simply reading what they were publishing. You know that there are many people who are black, white, red and yellow, black and white, who are fighting abortion equally. We know that, right? Uh, but the George Wash, the, the queer radicals jumped on and said, the George Washington University Police Department came to the, the protest and proceeded to stand in between GW students and the TFP men facing the students and protecting, they protected these, these men. The students felt unsafe because the police failed to remove a nuisance from campus. While the mob yelled profanities, a nurse in scrubs approached the, 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 the TFP group. She said, I love that you are here, she said cheerfully. It takes a lot of courage and I'm grateful. Then pointing to the pro-abortion mob, she added, that's what hell looks like. It did not... It did look and sound hellish because the culture of death is united under the same master, Lucifer, in its hatred against God, order, virtue, and innocent life. The mob followed the TFP volunteers to their vehicles where they screamed, never come back and spit on the windows of their van. Nevertheless, many students saw or heard, who saw and heard were encouraged Several came up and said, uh, oh, several wrote to them and said, I just want to lend my support for all the volunteers that went out yesterday afternoon and let you all know that there are people out there that genuinely believe that the culture of death can be extinguished, wrote a GW student. Several students wrote positive things. Uh, someone else, uh, may God inspire more young Americans to stand up and fight the good fight. I'm sure that this mob thought they won. I mean, they chased these People who are trying to save babies off the campus. I'm sure they thought they won. And it looked like they won. In a way, didn't it? But the pro-life group that did this were successful failures. They encouraged the faithful that heard them. 
They impacted those with soft hearts. You don't think people are being convicted out there? There are soft hearts out there. Even some of those, and this is what I've learned a long time ago, even some of those who scream the loudest are the most angry, are the very ones who are trying to drown out God's voice because God is convicting them and reaching them. Think of Saul who became Paul. The very ones who are the most angry, it's because they're being convicted and God is reaching them. And, and, and it, takes, it takes people who are willing to be successful failures. Successful failures like these folks were to touch the hearts of these people. Have we learned to be faithful to God? Even though it means we will fail in God's eyes. In ministry, we talked about will we choose popularity or faithfulness? Remember, we talked about that. Second Timothy four two. It's hard to talk about. It's hard to talk about things that you know are going to upset people. But God's word says, "You thou shall not murder." God's word says that that the Israel was ultimately finally judged because they were sacrificing babies, killing babies. That's God's word, and if we don't. Preach that and speak the truth in love. Not mean, not judging. We offer hope. How many of us here have been part of abortions and found God's healing and forgiveness? You can only find it in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the only place. But there first must be conviction in coming to the cross and finding the healing and the forgiveness that only Jesus can give. That's a hope that only we can give. But we have to preach the truth in love, no matter what. And that's what it talks about in 2 Timothy 4. Verse 2 says this, Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Now get this, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound Doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge, discharge all the duties of your ministry. This is no surprise that most churches have gone apostate today. That no longer even use the word of God. That no longer preach the gospel. It's no shock. Paul told Timothy it was going to happen. But he also told us what we must do. Preach the word faithfully. And it's very important that we make up our mind. Are we going to, are we going to, are we going to try to please the world? Are we going to try to be friends with the world? Are we going to speak the truth in love? And often, we have to make this decision before, and I'm deciding to be a successful failure. A failure in the world's eyes, a success in God's eyes. Because often, we do our best for God. We do our best for God, yet the world judges us as a failure. We are faithful. We give everything for God, and yet, in spite of that, in spite of doing everything we can for God and faithfully serving Him, and yet, our ministry still struggles. We still hit the wall. Our ministry even fails. That prodigal son does not come home. Our business crashes. We lose our job. We lose a big game in a traumatic way. 
Think of Clayton Kershaw, strong Christian, gives up two home runs on a row. Are you kidding me? But that guy is faithful. He is a faithful witness. We, we lose our health. We lose our loved one. We pray for a lost loved one, and they don't respond. Instead, they turn on us and hate us because we try to share Jesus Christ with them and the love of Christ. We do our best to live as salt and light here in the USA today, but it continues on the path to wrath. And it's easy to get down, isn't it? It's easy to get down, even want to give up. Anybody here felt like giving up this week? Don't raise hands. But remember Elijah and his successful failure. His successful failure. God does not grade on results. He grades on faithfulness. Much of what looks good in the world's eyes, and even the church world's eyes, is really not success. It's failure. Because the word of God has not been preached. Conviction has not happened. And grade, God grades not on results, but on faithfulness. What we do for God and for his glory is never a failure no matter what it looks like. No matter what it looks like. And we can't see as far as God can see. God can see a lot further than we can. He can see till the end. He can see till the end. We, we can't see it. So many times we think it's a failure. We can't see it. I, I remember there was a year, 20, when we first came here, there was a, a woman who we used to witness to. Kim and I used to witness to, see her, knew her. And we would share. And once in a while she'd come to church, once in a while she'd come to Bible study. We'd constantly share. And finally she just never quite made that jump to faith. And she moved. Things kind of fell apart. She moved. And Kim just recently saw her years later. Haven't seen her in years. Just saw her up to another town. And she came running up and said, I'm a Christian now. I'm going to a really good church. I'm a Christian now. Shared her story. Been through a lot, but now she's following Jesus Christ. And think, think of how many of the things we get discouraged and, and think nothing happened and it didn't do any good and why did I bother and we, we can't see to the end. Think of Chuck Harrison on the streets. Thousands of people he's talked to. Get discouraging sometimes, doesn't it? He could use a, someone to go out with him here and there. Sign up. Bring your sign up sheet. But think of the people that are going to run up to him in heaven. Think of that. A lot of us have had ministries and, and ministered and thought it was a failure, but God judges differently. He's got a whole different way. Often what looks like failure to the world even feels like failure to us is mission accomplished to God. Marching around Jericho. All those times. Were they successful when the walls fell down the 13th time? They were just as successful the first time. They were obedient to God. Yeah, it was nice that the walls fell down, but 
I'm sure some Israelites died between the first and the 13th walk. You know, it's over a week's time. They, they were rewarded too, just the same. It's faithfulness that God rewards. It, that's mission accomplished to God. I'm going to finish with a story I just read this week. Of successful failure. A new film is coming out. It tells the story of the fastest growing church in the world. An underground persecuted Christian movement in a country known for exporting radical Islamic terrorism. The country is Iran. Oh, you didn't hear about this. I guess CNN forgot. People in Iran, a Muslim-majority nation, are fleeing Islam in droves as believers bow their knees to Jesus and become aggressively pro-Israel. According to the documentary, Sheep Among Wolves, coming to Christ and becoming pro-Israel. What if I told you Islam is dead, one unidentified Iranian church leader says in the film? What if I told you that the mosques are empty inside Iran? What if I told you that no one follows Islam inside of Iran? Would you believe me? This is exactly what is happening inside of Iran. God is moving powerfully inside of Iran. The pastor adds, what if I told you the best evangelical evangelist for Jesus was the Ayatollah Khomeini? The Ayatollahs brought the true face of Islam to light and people discovered it was a lie. After 40 years under Islamic law, a utopia according to them, they've had the worst devastation in the 5,000 year history of Iran. Now, because of that, more Iranians have come to faith in Jesus in the last 20 years than in the 1,300 years since Islam swept through the Persia. More in 20 years than in 1,300 years combined. Thomas calls the movement the Iranian awakening. Somehow our media has missed this. It owns no property no buildings, no central leadership, and is predominantly led by women. But the new believers in the Islamic Republic face great risks. We know that if they get us, the first thing they will do to us as a woman is rape us. And then they will beat us, and ultimately they will kill us, one believer said. This is the decision we have made that we want to offer our bodies as sacrifices. Because I have this thought when I wake up that when I leave the, that door, I might not come back. And many of them don't come back. But the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Remember that in the days to come in our country. Many are being tortured and killed in Iran. But they're seeing a revival. 
we've got nothing happening here in either front, do we? In the USA today, no persecution, no revival. God may change that. Many are tortured and killed. They are losing in the world's eyes, but they're winning in God's eyes. They are successful failures. They, we need to look what's happening in eternity, for eternity, to see the rest of that story. Successful failures. Are we ready to fail for Jesus Christ today? Are we ready to become successful failures for Jesus? That's what Hebrews 2 is talking about. And Hebrews 2, I'll share this with you to, to, to end. In Hebrews 2, when he says, I'm sorry, Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's what he's talking about. Successful failures. Jesus, the shame of the cross, says here, Jesus looked like a failure. He was on the cross. That was considered the ultimate shame in the Roman world. To be hung on a cross. You couldn't do anything worse to somebody. Anything more humiliating than that. But it wasn't a failure. It was a success. Jesus was a successful failure because what, of his, what his death on that cross accomplished for us. Proved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's what Jesus Christ accomplished through his failure. The success was our salvation. If we will believe in him, Let's pray. I want to ask, first of all, have we all put our faith in Jesus Christ? Have you ever acted on what Jesus did on the cross? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal Life. Have you ever put your, believed in him, it's not the intellectual, have you ever put your faith, the word means faith, have you ever put your faith in Jesus Christ? It's not in the head, it's in the heart. Have you ever put your faith in Jesus? You can do that right now. Right now. The simple prayer of faith. God, I ask you to forgive me for everything I've ever done wrong, every sin, anything that goes against your word. I ask you to forgive me. I repent, really repent. Turn away, walk the other way. I ask you to forgive me because I'm putting my faith in Jesus. His death on the cross for me 
His payment for my sin, the blood he gave for me, I put my faith in Jesus. I give my life to him. If you have prayed that prayer of faith, really prayed it, something amazing has happened inside of you. The Bible says you have been born again. You have been made a new creation in Jesus Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. And I want to encourage you to let somebody know. Maybe you have a family member or a friend here. Maybe you... Maybe you fill out the card and stick it in the box or tell me on the way out or talk to somebody here or, or call me, text me, something. Let somebody know because we want to help you grow in your faith and not get choked by the weeds in the, of the world and really change and, and be transformed by the power and the love of Jesus Christ. Let somebody know. It's awesome what has just happened in your life. For the rest of us who have already put our faith in Christ, how is God speaking to us? Are we ready to give all to him? Are we ready to lose all so that we can gain everything? How is God calling us to fail for him? Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us all throughout this week, today, throughout the week, from now on, many times bringing back to our mind and to our hearts successful failure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.